I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles this morning, open them to Mark chapter 8. Mark 8. I have on the schedule this morning that I'm preaching 1 through 21. That won't happen. <laughs> won't get that far. Probably we'll get through about 13 this morning. But uh, this morning uh, we'll look at Mark chapter 8. Interesting news story this week. Did you see it? Let's, let's take a look. His handwritten sign says he has the God-given gift of a great voice. Hey, I'm going to make you work for your dollars. Say something with that great radio voice. When you're listening to nothing but the best of oldies, you're listening to Magic 98.9. Thank you so much. God bless you. Thank you. And we'll be back with more right after these words. <laughs> and don't forget, tomorrow morning is your chance to win a pair of tickets to see this man live in concert. Thank you so much. Well, when I was 14 years old, I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. When I was 14, I kind of listened to one of our area radio announcers. And uh, I went as a field trip to go meet the guy, and he looked nothing like what he sounded like. So I asked him about that, and he said to me, listen, radio is defined theater of mind. And so when he said theater of mind, I just said, well, hey, I can't be an actor, I can't be an on-air personality, but... The voice just became something of a, of a development over years, and I went to school for it. And then alcohol and drugs and a few other things became part of my life. And I got two years clean, and I'm trying hard to get back, and hopefully somebody from one of these television or radio say, hey, I need a voiceover, or I, I need something. So, you know, I'm hoping one day, watch Family Guy, weeknights at 7.30 on Fox 28. There are often homeless people asking for did you see that story through the week? Amazing story. And uh, if it, uh, what struck me when I saw that was, first of all, the guy's voice. The guy's voice is just amazing. You know, I would love to have that voice as a preacher, you know. Uh, love to have that, but I don't. But his voice was amazing. But the other thing, once I stopped to think about it, is who knows how long that guy had been standing out there in that spot with that sign until one guy, one reporter, had enough compassion to stop and actually talk to the guy. And when he did, his life was changed forever. This morning, we're going to look at our God, the God who has compassion, who has not driven past us, but who has came to us. He has stopped where we were. I want us to look at it this morning. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. 
And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we need desperately to hear from you. God, speak through me, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, I want to show you one final lesson in a faraway land. One final lesson in a faraway land. We've been looking over the past several weeks at Jesus taking his disciples out of Jewish territory and taking them directly into Gentile or pagan territory. He's taken them to the dirtiest place possible, to the dirtiest people possible in their mind, and he has had compassion on them. And now he gives them one final lesson before he comes back into Jewish territory. He's spent all this time in um, this Gentile land, and he's got just a few more things for them. One final lesson. One thing I want you to see this morning, or one thing that's obvious in the text, it's already obvious because I've set it up, is the compassion of our God. The Bible there says, Jesus says, I have compassion on the crowd. In those days, a great crowd gathered. He has compassion on them because they had been with him three days and had nothing to eat. This is beautiful. This is our God. You won't find this in any other religion. Christianity is not a religion. It is God revealing himself to us. This is beautiful, though, that Jesus here, we have a, an account of him saying, I have compassion on the crowd. In Jesus, we learn that God has compassion for two things. Number one, our physical needs. Here it's their physical need that drives Jesus to the point of saying, we cannot let these people go without feeding them. They're hungry. They've not had food in three days. If I send them away, many of them will faint on the way. The word faint there is a word that means literally to unstring a bow, that it would just fall limp. He says many of them have come from far away. They've had nothing to eat. Jesus has compassion on their physical needs. And I want you to know today, church, all of you who are sitting here, Jesus also cares for those physical needs in your life. It's not all simply spiritual. Now, that's the greatest part. We have a God who will care for us, who does care for us. In the same way that he looks at these people, and there's no record of them asking for food, he simply volunteers to give them food. They've been with me now for three days. I've got to give them something. Matthew, he had taught about this in Matthew chapter 6 on the Sermon on the Mount. This had to have been triggered in the minds of those disciples who had heard it in that first preaching. In Matthew 6, verses 25 through 33, Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. You know, I, I would imagine that probably when Jesus stood up to preach and he said, therefore, I tell you, they were waiting for something very spiritual, very religious. And when Jesus says, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, 
Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory is not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I don't know where you are or what's going on in your life. I know that we live in a day where there's a lot of people that are desperate. There's a whole lot of people that are in the situation of this man standing on a corner just hoping that someone will give him a break. But maybe you're not to that point. You're holding things together, and everything from all appearances looks pretty nice, but on the inside, you're a wreck. You don't know how things are going to work out. You don't know what's going to happen. I'm telling you today that you have a God who cares. And I'm not telling you that you have the God that the TV preacher talks about, that if you'll just send this in, he'll give you everything you want. But I'm telling you, we have a God who cares and will take care of you. Isn't that good? That's good. We don't deserve that. He doesn't owe us that. This is not some draw that he owes us once a month. This is his grace. This is his heart. He is compassionate. And I don't know what all is going on in this room in individual lives, but I pray that you would hear that and know that and take it to heart, that you can find what Ethan talked about, what John Piper talks about, your greatest satisfaction in Christ alone. He cares for you. Secondly, though, he doesn't simply care for our physical needs, but in every way he has made every provision and cares for our spiritual needs. And this is the most important. He does care for our spiritual needs. Uh, there's some clues in this passage that I don't know were intended for this, but I just couldn't help as I read through it to see these, that there is a spiritual aspect in this. He says here, Jesus says, these people have been with me for how many days? Three. Does that remind you of anything? Jesus was in the tomb for three days. He says, if I send them away, many of them will faint. I couldn't help but to see in that word faint this picture of our prospect if we are left without Christ. If we're left without the cross and the three days and the resurrection... And he sends us away. He sends us away without hope. And we have nothing. We will indeed not just faint, not simply be unstrung, but we will go out into eternity to bear the wrath of God justly for our sins that we have committed in the body. 
He says also there, there's a phrase that clues me in that this is talking about spiritual needs as well. He says that many of them have come from far away. And this is a clue to what he's about to reveal in the rest of the text. This is the rest of the story moment. When he says many of them have come from far away, in the, in the minds of these disciples, they're saying, well, yes, we realize that, Jesus. We've come from far away. When are you going to get us back to where we're comfortable, Jesus? We don't like being in this pagan, faraway land. Jesus, we understand that they're from far away, but Jesus, so are we. Take us back. And Jesus wants to show them that the gospel, that the three days is not simply for the covenant Israel, but that Jesus would come to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world for those who were near in the camp as well as those who were from far away. Amen? You better say amen because you're from far away, all right? We see the compassion of God. Secondly, secondly, we see the commission of his disciples. We see this in verses 4 through 10. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Now, you read this and you say, why would the disciples say this? Do they not remember the feeding of the 5,000? That's a natural question. In fact, many have come to the conclusion that this is not a separate account. This is simply the same, same event. It's just another telling of it. That there was no separate feeding of the 5,000 and a separate feeding of the 4,000. This was just the same event told twice and therefore, they use it to try to um, discredit the Bible. But there's some clues in here that Jesus believes and Jesus knows and the, and the disciples know that this is two separate accounts. Probably the greatest evidence of this is the fact that later on he asks them, do you not remember how many baskets you took up when I fed the 5,000? And they said, 12. And when I fed the 4,000, how many did you take up? Now, why would Jesus ask them about a separate event if it wasn't a separate event? So why here are they saying, how can we feed these people in this desolate place? Well, it's because, not because they are really doubting God. It's not because they are really wondering, how in the world could we do this? Matthew's version of this story, his telling of this event, gives us a clue. In fact, in Matthew Chapter 15, verse 33, you don't have to turn there, but in Matthew 15, 33, it is the parallel to this. Matthew says, where are we to get enough bread? I think that's the spirit with which they're asking it. They're not saying, Jesus, this is impossible. They're saying, Jesus, this is impossible for us. And I want you to see in this that he's showing them here, he's teaching them what he also wants us to know, that we are to take, hmm, we are to take the broken bread sent by the Father, blessed, and distribute it to those near and far. He wants us as the church to get the mission. He wants them to understand it. And if we're going to do that, we must also do what they did. They, they admitted their inadequacy. Where are we to get this bread, Jesus? We can't do this. And we have to do the same thing. And then, in essence, their silence, the period on the end of that sentence says, your turn, Jesus. We can't get this bread, Jesus. And you just 
wait for Jesus to do it. Because, church, listen to me. We've been given the commission to go and make disciples of all nations. How are we going to do that? How are you going to do that? Are, are you going to rack up enough frequent flyer miles that you're going to travel to every nation and tribe and people group of the globe, go into all sorts of threatening situations, come back, take the gospel to them? We can't do that. Only God can do that, and he's chosen to use us. And what the disciples here are showing us is that we must say to Jesus, Jesus, we can't, but you can. Please do it through us. And then he says to them, there's, there's an interesting word in the text. After they say, how can we feed these people in this desolate place? He says, well, how many loaves do you have? They say, seven. The number seven there is very important. It's very symbolic. You have to be careful in Scripture when you read Scripture not to try to look for symbolism in everything, because you could, and some people do. They see some metaphorical meaning behind every little thing, you know, and it's not always the case, but here it is symbolic of something greater. He says, how many do you have? They say seven. He says, sit down. He takes the bread. He looks up to heaven. He thanks the Father for it. He breaks it, and he hands it to his disciples. He says, now go set it before them. Go set it before the people. Go, go take it to them. They take it. He keeps, he keeps doing this. He keeps breaking. He takes the fish. He keeps thanking the Father and handing it to them. He is, again, what he did with the 5,000, he is creating bread from grain that never grew in a field. He is creating fish on the spot that never swam in water. <laughs> Think about that. That's Jesus. They're watching this. They keep, they keep coming back and saying, it's amazing. Wouldn't that be amazing? And then he says, go take up what's left over. And the 5,000, they used baskets that were small baskets, probably not much bigger than what we used to collect our offering in. There were 12 baskets taken up. Those 12 baskets were symbolic. If you remember, when they, when they went back around, they took up 12 baskets. There was one basket for each of the disciples, which was symbolic that there was one for each of the tribes of Israel. And that, that took place, don't miss it, the feeding of the 5,000 took place in Jewish territory. So what he's teaching them in that is he's showing these disciples that, look, I am the Messiah, the promised one that has been promised to Abraham, that's been promised to Israel. I am the one that's going to fulfill all of those promises completely to the nation of Israel. But here he comes into Gentile pagan territory, and he comes to this group, and he says, go take up the leftovers. They don't have small baskets like these. They have these large baskets. They, they would be like hampers, the kind that, that you know, that are moms wish their kids would throw their stuff into, you know, the, the big ones. The moms get the big ones so that you can chunk them from across the room, hoping that they might hit the basket, right? You know, uh, it'd be nice if, if rooms of teenagers just had a, had a handle. You just pull the handle, the floor drops out, everything drops into the laundry. You know, you close that thing up, you know, you, even, even the kid, you know, then you pull a kid out, you know, they, at least they're getting clean that way too, you know. They take these large baskets, these hampers, and they walk around and they collect and they take up seven of them. What's important about seven? 
Because seven in Scripture is the number of perfection. It's the number of completion. So Jesus wants them to know that in Jewish territory, I have come to completely fulfill all the promises made in the covenant to Israel. And in pagan Gentile territory where you and I live, he wants them to know that I have come to completely fulfill redemption for the world. Y'all are way too quiet on that. They take up these seven large baskets. In my mind, I'm thinking, with my sanctified imagination, I'm thinking, it's just a picture that this would go well beyond them, that these large baskets show that there was enough for way more than this, Jesus. Yes, 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 you're getting it, because it will go way beyond this, Peter. Jesus is showing them that he is the complete Messiah, that he is the complete Son of God, even to the Gentiles, even in this desolate place. And that's why this miracle was repeated. It's not the same miracle told different ways. It is two separate miracles, 5,000 and 4,000, really more like 25,000 and 20,000, Jewish territory and pagan territory. There's another word in this that points to the commission of his disciples. It says that they, after the disciples distribute and set it before them, that they all ate, and the word is that they were all satisfied. We looked at it in the feeding of the 5,000. It meant that they were completely satisfied. We know that because they took up seven large baskets. You ever been to a golden corral? <laughs> I mean, people carrying baskets out of there left and right, you know? They got full. Notice in verse 9, I saw this as I was looking through this. In chapter 8, verse 9, there were about 4,000 people. That's, he's talking about men there. With women and children, it would have been more. Matthew tells us that. And he sent them away. He sent them away, which meant that all of the apprehension that he had felt back here in verses 1 through 3 about sending them away was gone. I can't send them away. If I send them away, they've had no food. They'll faint. Many of them have come from far away. And Jesus says, now, go. Go. I've, I've met your need. Go. Beautiful. The gospel alone fully satisfies the soul of the recipient and the justice of God. I want to say it again. The gospel alone fully satisfies the soul of the recipient and the justice of God. Do we really believe that? Yes. Do you really believe that? Because if we believe that the gospel alone satisfies the soul and the justice of God, then why do we so easily sit in our American lives caring nothing for people outside of our context? If we really believe that the gospel alone is what satisfies the soul and satisfies the justice of God, then we could not help to go across the street and to go around the world. We see in this, in him saying, set this before the people. 
We see in this the commission of his disciples and likewise the commission of this church and the commission of you as a follower of Christ. Put yourself in the story. Jesus says to you, set it before the people. We see the compassion of God. We see the commission of his disciples. And then this is where I'll end today. I'll end on this point today. We see the condemnation of the skeptics. The condemnation of the skeptics. Verses 10 through 13, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him. Isn't it amazing that he's been out of Jewish territory for who knows how long? And you remember how the Pharisees treated him when he would walk around through Jewish territory? I mean, he's through the grain field. They're, they're trompsing through the grain field with him, waiting to see his, his disciples reach out and just take a handful of grain just from the edges of the field. And they're there to say, ah, they're working on the Sabbath, Jesus. Why are they doing that? They're at every turn, and he's been out of Jewish territory for who knows how long. He comes back in, and immediately... The Pharisees are right there, right there to argue with him. It's, it's as if he's gotten in his boat after leaving the, the multitude, comes across the Sea of Galilee. He's pulling the boat up onto the shore, and they're there. And what are they asking for? Jesus, we want a sign from you. Now, in my mind, and probably in yours too, you're thinking, you've been following the guy around. You, you need another sign? Have you not been paying attention? They're seeking from him a sign, though, not to, to see him do a sign. They're seeking from him a sign because the Bible here tells us they want to test him. This wasn't the first time they had asked for a sign. In Matthew 12, 38, it says, Some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. They did this because they wanted to manipulate him. Isn't it reminiscent of someone else who wanted to see a sign from Jesus? Think back to Matthew 4, Jesus in the wilderness. Satan comes to him in the wilderness and tempts him. After 40 days with no food, the Bible gives us the biggest understatement in the whole, in all the pages, Jesus was hungry. And Satan comes and says, Jesus, hey, if you're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. I want to see a sign from you, Jesus. Jesus, if you're the Son of God, cast yourself down, for he'll send his angels to protect you. Jesus, bow down and worship me. They kept asking for more signs in an attempt to manipulate him, and all the while they revealed their true identity. They were not sons of the God of Abraham. They were sons of their true father, the devil. They were acting just like him. They were ignoring all of the signs that Jesus had already done, those alone were enough to show them the truth about Jesus, and they were without excuse. They had been there, followed him around, and saw him say to the man with the withered hand, stretch out your arm. And the, the arm grew 
in front of their eyes. They were there to watch him say to the man who was crippled, rise up and walk. They watched him heal the blind and cause the deaf to hear, cause the mute to speak. They watched him raise the dead. They weren't looking for a sign. They were ignoring all of the signs because they wanted to be right. We see in this the condemnation of skeptics. Even their own leader had said that they were without excuse. John 3, verses 1 through 2. Remember Nicodemus? Nicodemus. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, which meant he was, he was one of the leading Pharisees. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. They knew it. They knew in their heart who he really was. They had enough revelation to know, yet they suppressed it. They ignored it. They didn't want it to be so. Therefore, they said, we will believe what we want to believe. Well, what is Jesus' response? This is very, very, very telling. Jesus' response, he does a few things here. Number one, he sighed deeply in his spirit. In his spirit, he sighs deeply, the Bible says there. Verse 12, it's very familiar to us. It should be very familiar, Jesus sighing. Do you remember the last time Jesus sighed? He sighed in the, last week's te- in, the, in the passage last week when he took the man who was deaf and mute and he stuck his fingers in his ears. He spit and he touched the man's tongue and he sighs in front of the man to show him his compassion for the man and his disgust over the fall of man that's put this guy in this position. Now, in front of these Pharisees, when they say, Jesus, we want a sign from you. He sighs again, but this time it's not compassion for them. This time, yes, it is over the sinful fall of man, but it is more pointed. It is over their sinful condition. It is pointed right at them. This time the sigh is over their hardness of heart. Then he says, secondly, he says, not only does he sighs deeply in his spirit, then he says, why does this generation seek a sign? In other words, what else do I have to do? What, what else do I have to do that I have not already done? And then he says, no sign will be given to this generation. Matthew again helps us in this. In Matthew 16, 4, his telling says that Jesus said, no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. What was the sign of Jonah? Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. The sign of Jonah is the sign that they would be given. Jesus would be crucified, they rejoiced over it, and then he would be placed into the belly of the earth for three days. And he would come out just as Jonah had, conquering death and sin once and for all, and they would indeed reject that. You remember when they placed him in the tomb, they tried to bribe the guards? No sign will be given them except the sign of Jonah. The resurrection is the exclamation mark on the sentence, Jesus is Lord. 
And then the last thing he does is he leaves them. He sighs. Why does this generation seek a sign? No sign will be given to them. And then it says he leaves them. He left them. That's what it says there in verses 11 through 13. He left them. He left them and got into the boat and went to the other side. Now, this is symbolic as well. Earlier, he gave the crowd bread and that, that they didn't even ask for, and then he sends them away. Here, he refuses to give them what they've asked for, and he leaves them. You see the opposite? The juxtaposition. He has compassion on the multitude, but yet he is rejecting because of their hardness of heart. What about you? Do you fall in this place of the skeptic? Do you look at the signs, the things that are plain about God and suppress the truth? Listen to this verse. Romans 1, verses 18 through 25. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and, un and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Think about that in the context of these Pharisees and Sadducees and religious people. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. MacArthur says it this way. He talks about him leaving them here on the shore. He says not only did he leave them physically on the northwestern shore of Galilee, but he abandoned them in the sense of Romans 1 to their darkness and their unbelief. It's the last dealing that Jesus will have with the Pharisees in this conversation in Galilee. What about you? Do you look at the things that are plain about God and suppress the truth? Do you look around and you see all of creation? Do you, tomorrow morning, all the school children are praying that they will wake up tomorrow morning and it will be white, right? When you look out tomorrow morning and you see that, will you ignore the fact that our God does that? Will you suppress the truth that he has kept that stored in the storehouses of heaven? If so, then you are without excuse. You, especially you, have had every opportunity to know God, but you have refused to honor him as God or give thanks to him. You who have sit, week, sat week in and week out through sermons, who've watched it on TV, who own multiple copies of Bibles, who listen to Christian radio, who put Christian stickers and 
things all over your car. None of that saves you. By hardening your heart, you have become futile in your thinking, the text here says, and your heart is becoming darker and darker. You claim to be wise, but only a fool would exchange the glory of the immortal God for a God made in his own likeness. That's what we do when we look at the things that are plain about God, when we look at all the things that he has done, when we look at the cross and reject it. We become foolish. Our hearts grow darker and darker. You claim to be wise, but only a fool would exchange the glory of the immortal God for a God made in his own likeness. It may not be too late for you. As of this moment, he may not have left you. He may not have given you up in the lusts of your heart. I would challenge you to do exactly what Romans 1 tells you to do. Don't buy the lie. Receive the truth and worship, the, worship and serve the Creator who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this morning, um, we have nothing else to say. There is nothing that is left to be said because, Lord, you have said it all. We are without excuse. You have done everything that is needed to make yourself plain and obvious. Lord, this morning I pray that you would shed grace on us. The grace that would cause us to worship and serve the Creator not the creature. That we would worship and serve the one who is blessed forever. The amen. The Christ of God. Lord, I pray that we would not find ourselves in the position of the Pharisees. God, the teaching of this scripture is that there are people who will sit and they will look at and hear a revelation about you and they will suppress it and reject it and in so doing they will harden their hearts they will grow darker and darker and God what I'm asking you to do today is to chase the darkness out of their hearts that the light of the world would shine brightly in this place in individual lives today only you can do that. God, we thank you that you are compassionate, that you have made every provision, that you will supply physical need as well as you have supplied our spiritual need. God, I pray that we as a church would take the mission seriously, that we would believe it and take it to heart, and we would set it before the people of our community and the people of this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.